invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. And let me just add to what uh, Lon said. You know, the word holy uh, simply means set apart. And so when we say holy week, um, we just say that we're going to set apart that week to focus in on what Christ has done for us through the cross. And so here at Second, and I know other churches have done similar things around the city, here at Second we'll have worship services at noon every day uh, for 30 minutes. Um, And actually you can pick up lunch here either before or after, um, or take it with you um, before or after the service. So lunch every day, and then um, on Good Friday we'll have uh, an hour-long service uh, on Good Friday. Um, and we have a Monday, Thursday service. And all, the whole point of it is this, to uh, kind of take a retreat from your normal way of doing life. So our normal weeks don't look like that. Our normal weeks aren't full of uh, a, a worship service at noon every day. Um, but for that week, to set apart that week in a different way so that it would refresh our minds, that we'd take a retreat from regular life. And I encourage you, uh, whether it's here at Second or if your church is doing that, to do something uh, similar as well. Here we are in Matthew uh, chapter 18. We're going to take a little different perspective on it this morning as we look at the, the, uh, the topic of accountability. You know, for the longest time, um, I've, driven, uh, I've driven a car um, actually, two of them, but they both were from the exact same year. So for the last, I guess it's uh, 15, 16 years, I've driven a car that was uh, built in 1997. And I really love that car. And, uh, um, but recently, I've realized that I could probably resell that car for more than I bought it. And so I'm making that move. But I bought this new car. And uh, though I felt like my old car had plenty of amenities that I'd like, this, I, I just literally haven't bought a car that, uh, that was built before 1997. And they've made a lot of improvements in cars since 1997. There's all these things that go on inside. Uh, one of the things that's interesting in, in my uh, new car is, uh, um, is that there's all this driver assist stuff, right? So my, my backup camera is way better than any backup camera I ever saw before. I mean, it's, it seems like it's... And if anybody is even moving in, uh, when I'm in reverse, anybody around me, my, the car senses that either a car or a person is moving and little, little beeps go off in that. Um, also, I have on my mirrors um, these little flashing, the bottom part of my, my um, side mirrors, um, what's called a blind spot monitor. Little, little things flash. Let me So if there's a car on the side, all of a sudden I can see this thing this thing flashing. Um, when I'm backing up, if there's something too close to the sides, it, it beeps. Now, I know that, um, that I've had some, some uh, older men in my life, uh, grandfathers and such, that would be irritated by such uh, devices because they would think, I know how to drive. You don't need to help me how to drive. I don't need a blind spot monitor. I can handle my blind spots, you know, and that's the way they'd feel. Um, I've actually enjoyed it because I'm thinking, this is really helpful. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm guaranteed to just have less wrecks. And I've thought about that because it actually says, there's a little button on my uh, dashboard. I can turn on and off the blind spot monitor. And I thought to myself, why would anybody ever turn that off? That seems like a great thing. Why wouldn't you want to monitor for your blind spot? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. <laughs> we're going to talk about having a blind spot monitor. Because all of us have blind spots. Now, I'm going to tell you, it's way more serious than whether you're going to back up or, or move over into a lane where some other car is. Let me tell you how serious it is. 
I've had, this has happened a couple of times here at this church. Um, I've had men, this has been a few years ago, who've made an appointment with me as a pastor. Right? They made an appointment. They came into my office. And they sat across from me in my office, sitting there. And the whole point of them making that appointment was for them to convince me that the divorce that they were about to pursue made complete sense. And I've, and I've literally had men sitting across from me. They made the appointment. I didn't make the appointment. I didn't seek them out. I wasn't asking for this conversation. And they're sitting across from me and they're saying, listen, Todd, you just need to understand uh, my wife and I just aren't happy. And we've, you know, we've given it a good run for about 20 years and it's just, it's just not working out. And so I'm really, we really need this divorce. And I'm struck, I've been, I'm struck by two things in that moment. The first thing I'm struck with is the fact that this guy has lost his mind. And I'm not saying because he wants to get a divorce. We've all, we've all probably been in places where we thought, you know, I might be happier without my wife. Certainly our wives have probably thought I'd be happier without this guy. Right? Yeah. That's not what I thought this guy's, why this guy's lost his mind. I thought this guy's lost his mind because he made an appointment with a pastor <laughs> and came in and sat across from me. And he's trying to convince me, believing that that's going to work. He's just not thinking straight. The other thing that struck me is a little bit of terror. And this is why. I know the path that this guy went down to get to that point. You know why I know that path? Because I've been down that path a few steps before. All of us have been down that path a few steps before. Now we just didn't go, we haven't gone all the way where that guy's gone. And whatever sin or whatever temptation, whatever, whatever fall that's happened in anybody else's life, the reality is, brothers, we know, we know that path. We know how that guy got there. And the reason we know how that guy got there is because in our own brokenness, in our own sinfulness, we've been down that path a few steps before. And we know that we're capable. Or I, as I sat there looking across from this guy, I thought, <laughs> I get it. I'm capable. I'm capable of getting to where you are. Or as one of my friends said at one, one time, um, there is no darkness that I don't potentially have the ability to grasp for. Like I could be there. So how is it that we're going to have a life, a, 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 a context in which we have some blind spot monitors, which protects us from our own sinful self. Well, I'm having us turn here to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Some of you are thinking, goodness, Todd, we did this about a year ago. We were in Matthew 18. We had something on here. Well, let me just give you the context. Let me give you perspectives because I'm going to take a different perspective on this thing. Let me start with the context. Just remind you here, this is Jesus speaking. So we need to know that. The second thing is just notice at the beginning of the chapter, as Jesus begins to speak about the kingdom of heaven, he talks about the seriousness of sin. So that's, that's the first part that's going on in this chapter, seriousness of sin. And then next, in verses 10 through, 13, through 14, he's talking about going after the one sheep that has gone astray. So he's, he, he's saying the seriousness of sin, and then he talks about as a sheep, and then he talks about this one sheep that leaves the herd, and how a good shepherd goes after that one sheep to go ahead and rescue him when they've gone astray. And then notice after the verses that we are looking at this morning, verses 21 through the rest of the chapter, verse 35, it has to do about forgiving our brother. 
So the context here is really important for us to understand what is at stake in the verses that we're reading here. And the different perspective I want us to take is this. Usually when we read these verses in chapters 15 through, uh, through uh, 20, we usually think about ourselves as the, as the man who is going to the one who has sinned. This is about, if you haven't read it yet, this is the part where it says, listen, if, you're, if your brother sins or sins against you, go to him. And then it says, if he doesn't listen, take another guy with you. If he doesn't listen, then go ahead and take, uh, you know, tell it to the church. And usually what we're thinking when we read this or study it, we're usually thinking we're the guy going, right? I want to flip that this morning. I want us to talk about the guy receiving. <laughs> That's who I want us to be this morning. The guy in these verses who's receiving the rebuke. Let's go ahead and read those and let's dive into what God has to say to us this morning. Jesus says this, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church... Let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You see on the, uh, the notes before you, you see four questions. And as we think about what it means to be men of God, men after God's own heart, we have to talk about the issue of accountability and what that means. And so the way I want to address it today, address it to my own heart, address it to you, is through these four questions. Question number one, do you have a brother who will come after you? Do you have a brother who will come after you? It says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, let me just uh, say this too, by the way, that in some early manuscripts, earliest manuscripts, it doesn't say against you. Um, and there is some dispute about whether that was in the original text. Is it in the original text that it was just uh, if your brother sins go? Or is it in the original text if your brother sins against you? I think the point that's important here is if your brother sins. That's what's key to lock in. So whether, whether or not it's against you personally or just in general, and we can go to other places in Scripture where we're called to restore each other when we go astray. And certainly the context of this with the parable of the lost sheep suggests the issue here is if your brother sins. And it says, if your brother sins, go and tell him. And the question is, if you and I are the guy sinning, is there a brother who will go to us? Do we have that? Do you have that in your life? A dear friend of mine, who I was actually in an accountability group with long, long time ago, pastor in Greenville, South Carolina now. His name is Andy Lewis. I have a quote from him at the top of your page. But here's something else that Andy said to us years and years ago. He said, and you've heard me say this, if you try to sneak away from the Lord, who would notice and who would come after you? If you tried to sneak away from the Lord, who would notice and who would come after you? What Andy was saying is, do you have a brother 
who will come after you, who will, who will seek you out. Notice, too, the, the context here, and this is so important for us to, to grasp it so that we receive this right. Notice in verse 15, it says, brother, twice, if your brother sins against you. And then it says, in the second sentence, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now turn in your Bibles, hold there, and turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. This is another place I thought about going in this discussion of, uh, of accountability. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes this in regards to being brothers, to walking together. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That doesn't mean spiritual like you're more godly. It just means if you're, if you're in the faith, if you have the same faith, you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And so the challenge here is that we are to walk as brothers in Christ. And brothers in Christ care for each other. We bear each other's burdens. And certainly there is uh, for us some personal discipline like we talked about last week. Right? There's some personal discipline. There's some personal accountability. And that's what we talked about, about being in, in self-control. But there's also mutual discipline and mutual accountability. That's what we're talking about this morning. So maybe last week you said, I personal discipline, personal accountability. How am I accountable to the God? How do I exhibit self-control? And what we're saying this week is, how do, I, how do I walk together as brothers in Christ in mutual accountability and mutual discipline? The other thing I want us to see, both from this Uh, verse 15, and from what we just read in Galatians 6, I want us to see this. This is about restoration. This isn't about punishment. I'm probably going to say this to you several times this morning because I love this. When you look at the discipline of God that God exhibits on his people, so God disciplining his people, when you look throughout Scripture, God doesn't discipline his people in order to punish them. God's discipline is not punitive. God's discipline is restorative. The whole point of God's discipline in our life is to restore us. And as we reflect that that discipline, that, that accountability, that mutual accountability to each other as brothers, the goal of it is restoration. That's why it says in verse 15, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the question then, How do you get a brother like that? (laughs) How do you get a brother who will come after you? How do you gain a, a, a friend in the Lord who will live out, verse 15, in your life? Two things. First thing is you gotta you gotta ask him. (laughs) You gotta go to somebody and say, Hey, I need you to, I need you to be this in my life. I need you to be this in my life. And the second thing is you got to confide in that guy. You actually got to tell him what the issues are. Now, I've had this model for me by a lot of men over a lot of times, and certainly Andy Lewis over 25 years ago was one guy that spoke a lot into my life. So it was, it was about 15 years ago when some of my friends who were in the pastorate were, were, were falling and uh, and 
were really struggling with sin and it was taking them out of pastoral ministry because either they, had, they were on the verge of, of ruining their marriages or they had fallen into some, some serious sin which disqualified them from, um, from ministry, uh, from continuing on in ministry. And I began to think to myself, you know what, I, again, I, I, know, I know the path that they went down to get to where they are. And I know that path because I've been down that path a few steps before. So I know I'm capable. I know I'm capable of walking and I need help. And I noticed that, that, uh, I noticed that the, um, that the uh, kids, the, the sons and daughters of these pastors and even the wives felt a little nervous about going to get help from somebody else for their pastor husband because they just didn't want to expose their pastor husband to that kind of thing. And I thought, you know what, I need to, <laughs> I need to, I need to get a blind spot monitor for Todd and for his whole family. I need a safety net. And so I went and, that's what I did. I went, to, I went to a couple brothers who I thought, you know what, if they come to me and need to rebuke me, if they need to do this, this Matthew 18, 15, I think I most likely will listen to them. <laughs> right? I just, their personalities, I'm like, I think... I think I'll be okay if they come and confront me. And I went to them and I said, listen, brothers, this is, this is my deal. I want my wife and kids to have a, a, a fire alarm to pull in my life. So this is the deal. Would you be willing if, my, if any of my kids or my wife come to you and just say, hey, something's off with Todd. Would you check it out? I, I just want them to only have to say that. And I want you guys, you brothers, to just say, thank you, Lynn. I got it. We got it from here. We'll take care of it. And we'll get all up in Todd's business. And I wanted to set that up (laughs) because I needed them to be that brother in my life who would come to me and say, hey, Todd, something's off and we need to talk. We need to figure this out. So in order to get a brother like that, I think I think sometimes we're passive in accountability. Right. We're imagining that accountability is passive. I get into a group and you all are just supposed to hold me accountable. Um, it, doesn't, it, doesn't actually, <laughs> it doesn't actually work like that. You got to be proactive. You got to ask someone and say, hey, listen, I want, you, I want you to be this in my life. And here, by the way, let me go ahead and tell you where all the dead bodies are buried in, where the dirty laundry is. Let me tell you ahead of time what's going on. And then, if we're going to have that, if you got that brother in your life, the last thing before we move on to the next question is we got to listen to them, brothers. When they come to us, we can't turn them away. we got to listen. One of the greatest examples of this is something that Barton uh, taught on a few weeks ago when he talked about true repentance. Remember, we looked at Saul, he looked at Saul and he looked at David, both of them sinning. The sin of David was, was way worse in the world's eyes than Saul's. Right? Saul just did some sacrifices that he shouldn't have done, should have waited for a priest to do it. David slept with another man's wife, and had him murdered. (laughs) Both of them sinned. Both of them confronted. One by Samuel. Uh, King uh, Saul gets confronted by Samuel. David gets confronted by the prophet Nathan. Remember Samuel, uh, when Samuel confronts uh, Saul, King Saul, Saul comes up with all these excuses. Finally, Samuel has to get really up into his business. Remember what happens with David? It's right in the throne room. It's in front of everybody. Nathan comes in, tells that story about the lamb who was stolen from the next door neighbor and slaughtered and all that. And David gets enraged and said, I want justice. That guy's got to die. 
And Nathan, in the middle of the throne room, says, you are that man. Now, he's king. David could have had him killed like that. Instead, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. He listened to his brother. Do you have a brother who will come after you? And when he does, let's listen. <laughs> let's listen to him. Even if he's ticking us off, all right? Even if he's ticking us off, let's listen to him. Second thing, are you seeking to live transparently? Are you seeking to live transparently? Notice what it says there in verse 16. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And we're unsure in this passage if what Jesus meant is witnesses to the conversation that you're about to have or witnesses to the actual sin. It's not clear. But here's the point. There's witnesses. <laughs> there's witnesses either to the conversation that's about to happen or there's witnesses to the actual sin. Are you seeking to live a transparent life? See, this is our problem, brothers. When we have secrecy in our lives, that becomes the power of Satan. It really is. Secrecy becomes the power of Satan. One of the things that, that you see Satan doing, like let's just take, let's just take the, the, the uh, issue of lust. Right? It used to be, you know, 30 years ago, if you wanted to look at pornographic material, um, you had to, you know, either go to a video store or you had to buy a magazine. You had to interact with a person at some point. Where, and at that point, there was, it wasn't a secret. The, the real danger of it, of it being on the internet is that it's a secret. You don't have to interact with any human. Satan knows that. He knows there's power in the secrecy. I remember years and years ago, this is like, when I was in college, I read uh, James chapter five. I was reading James chapter five and talks in there about confessing our sins to one another. Confess your sins to one another. And I didn't grow up Roman Catholic. I grew up Baptist. So, you know, Baptists make fun of Roman Catholics and Presbyterians make fun of Baptists. Um, I, I realized that once I came to the Presbyterian church and I was like, wait a second, why are you making fun of me? Anyways, uh, I didn't grow up Roman Catholic. That sounded very Catholic to me. We're going to confess our sins together. Why? Wait, that's in Scripture. What, what's that about? And the more I studied it, the more I began to understand it, I know what God's Word is telling us. God's Word is telling us, don't live in secrecy. Don't live in secrecy. Because secrecy is the power Satan uses to perpetuate sin in our lives. And one of the ways you can almost immediately Diminish the power of temptation in your life is to make sure it's not a secret. Tell someone. Tell someone that's your struggle. Let them know. Live transparently. And so my question as we think about living, seeking to live transparently, are we okay with this? Are we okay with having witnesses to your life? And I would encourage you, brothers, not to have a private life. That's a big deal for some of us in ministry, and I, and I think it's foolish. Some of us in, uh, in who are in ministry, um, 
have this idea that we need to have, you know, we need to have this place where we get away. We need to have this private life. And I understand we need to have family life. We need to, we need to not find our identity in whatever we're doing. But I'm not a big fan of private life. And I don't mean that you, I'm not saying that you air out everything on, on Facebook and Instagram. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that idea that there's things about you that you do that nobody knows about. There's a place you go that nobody else ever goes. I just think that's a disaster. And I think, I realize that God thought that would be a disaster in Todd Erickson's life. Because one of the great blessings of ministry and the churches I've been in, I just don't, I just don't, I, <laughs> I bump into people everywhere. And I think it's a good reminder. God says, you know, Todd, it's going to be bad for you to have, have any kind of secrecy in your life. So I'm going, to, I'm going to put you in situations and context. I've either been in churches that were in such small towns that I'd run into people who are in a congregation all the time, or I've been in churches uh, like this one that is so large that I'm running into people and I don't even know they're members of my church or see, or see me, but they're always like, hey, Todd, great job last week. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess you go to my church. It's awesome. I've been through the Amsterdam airport. I'm, I'm not saying this because I'm saying the Amsterdam sketchy. I'm saying this because that's an international airport that I've been through a ton of times. I think I've been, I think I've been through there 16 times. 12 of those times I have, and the airport's huge. 12 of those times I've run into people who weren't, weren't even on my trip. They were like, hey, Todd. I thought, oh, Lord, thank you. You knew I didn't need a private, a private life would be bad for Todd. You know what, brothers? I think a private life ultimately is bad for all of us. I think we need to seek to live transparently. So how do you do that? How do you get witnesses in your life? How do you, how do you make it so that you're living transparently? Well, I think, as I said before, you got to tell your brothers what the issues are in your life. Like, let them know ahead of time before it happens. Say, if I'm going to fall, these are the things I've fallen in the past in, and I just need to let you know that. I need you to be aware of that. That's why up there, my friend Andy Lewis, the quote that's on there, uh, on the page, it says, we're only accountable as we, we're only accountable as we want to be. And that is so true. You can be in an accountability group. You can even be asking accountability questions every week. And you know what? You can hide from them. You can say, yeah, I'm doing fine. No, I didn't, I didn't look at anything on, on TV or the internet that I shouldn't have looked at. Yeah, I've been, you can just lie. And they don't, they're not going to know. You're only as accountable as you want to be. And so the, the, it really does become on us a burden to, in our, in our good moments, when we're thinking straight, for us to seek to live transparently. So we've got we to gotta tell them. We've got to be active in that. And I've had some great examples in my life. There's this one guy who was uh, in our accountability group back in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, this, is, um, this is before we had, you know, smartphones and iPads and all of that. But we did have laptops, and he had a laptop, and I used to love this. Every time his wife went out of town for the weekend to go visit, she had like four sisters. Uh, Daniel would show up in my office on Friday afternoon before he drove. He would drive by my office on his way home. He would walk in with his laptop <laughs> and put it on my desk and just say, hey, can you keep this for me until Monday morning? And then just walk out. Basically, he was seeking to live transparently. <laughs> he was just saying, hey, I, I can't have this in my house 
by myself. I'm no good with that. So you just take that and, and I'll, I'll, I'll come by Monday and pick it up and get it from you. It's men like that in my life that have taught me, man, I got to initiate that when I, when, I'm, my, when I have my senses, I got to speak it. So I think I shared this with you before. When my wife went, my wife was diagnosed with cancer in the fall of 2019. And, uh, and, I, and I felt like I had, I think I was ready, you know, and all. But I woke up one morning in October, Saturday morning, sitting with my Bible, and, I, and I, a panic attack came over me. I was overwhelmed with a feeling of inadequacy. I'm not enough. I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't have enough emotional energy. I don't have enough compassion. I'm not going to have enough time. I'm not going to have enough money. I mean, everything was just flooding me. I was, in, I was just rolling. And I've been taught by some great men to live transparently. So I picked up my phone and I texted a bunch of those men in my life. And I just said, hey, this is what's going on right now. I don't need you to do anything other than know this is what's going on right now. I just need you to know. That's what I mean by living transparently. That's what, I, that's what it takes for us to get witnesses in our lives. And then when we have those witnesses and they, and they, they come to us, we need to realize that it's serious. That's, that's what's, that was what's going wrong here in these verses. In verse 16, the issue is that the guy who sinned doesn't understand this is serious. You had a brother come to you and you didn't listen to him. Now you got a couple of guys coming to you. This is serious. No matter what, no matter how they're acting, whether they're doing it the right way or not, there's now two guys or three guys talking to you. That right away should make you go, oh, I got to listen. I got to listen. Are we seeking to live transparently? Thirdly, do you value the safeguard of church discipline? Do you value the safeguard of church discipline? Jesus Christ says to, listen, if your brother sins, go to him and, and let him know. And see if you can restore your brother. If he doesn't listen, if he doesn't listen, then take some people with you, either who saw the sin or who can witness the conversation. If he doesn't listen to that, you go to your church elders. Now, this is important for us to, to recognize. Church discipline is extremely important in any church, but it's usually not practiced in very many churches. And that's sad. But it's serious and it's, it's, it's important to be in any church. But it's also noticed from Scripture, it's the last resort. It's not the first step. It's the last step. And obviously, this is, this is serious sin, serious unrepented sin. And God's point in this whole passage, beginning with the first verse of chapter 18, is that God is serious about sin, and he's serious about the holiness of his church. Brothers, God is very serious about sin. And he's serious about the holiness of his church. Remember in it's Acts chapter... <laughs> Uh-oh, Siri. It just got serious with me on my, on my iPad here. Um, <laughs> remember in uh, Acts chapter 5, we're not far into the, the start of the new church. Remember that story of Ananias and Sapphira? I remember being a kid and thinking... I better bring my nickel every time there's an offering because I don't want Ananias and Sapphira happening to me. I mean, I was like terrified. You know, they, they, now 
I learned later, it wasn't because they didn't bring enough. It's because they lied about what they brought. They tried to, they tried to, they were trying to show themselves to be something they were not in the context of the church. That's what happened. But, but God said, no, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to bring restoration to my whole church by showing them the seriousness of this sin and the importance of the holiness of God's church. And they were struck dead. Then you go to uh, 1 Corinthians 5. And again, we talked about this before, how 1 Corinthians, uh, you know, you, again, you think your church is struggling, you think your church has issues. Just read First and Second Corinthians and you'll feel great about your church, I promise. Um, these people were really, really struggling. Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. He said this, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man to have his father's wife? And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. And if in present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul's like, this is serious stuff. And you know, one of the struggles that we have as we try to share the gospel in Memphis, Tennessee, I've actually had some unbelievers say this to me. Hey, the people in the church, in your church, don't live any differently than I do. So I don't see why I would need to be a Christian. And I think that's a... a should be a conviction on us. I think sometimes, like the Corinthian church, there's some immorality in our churches that even the pagans go, that doesn't seem right. That seems messed up. God is serious about sin and he's serious about the holiness of his church, but he's blessed us with this amazing safeguard of church Discipline. Are you understanding how wonderful church discipline is? I get to speak on this every time we have our inquirers class, our new members class, because the last vow that you take to become a member of second says, do you submit yourself to the governing authority of the Presbyterian church, the session, all that? And I tell the, I tell the new members, hey, by the way, this vow, when you say yes to this vow, what you're saying is, hey, the, the elders have the right to get all up in my business. That's what I, that's what you're saying. You're giving you now, if you don't want to say that, don't say it. Don't make a vow to God. You don't want to keep, but that's what you're saying when you submit yourself to that. But I tell him, I said, this is wonderful. This is so good. So good. I told you I'd driven a car for the last 15, 18 years that was <laughs> built in 1997. So as you know, if you've driven old cars or you drive a car down Poplar for more than a year, that it gets out of alignment, right? And, uh, and so even though you want to go this way, you let go of the wheel, it just does this. Well, you know, a car from 1997, it was perpetually out of alignment. I even stopped doing the alignment thing because what good would that do? I'd pay for it and five days later, wouldn't be any good anymore. So, you know, if I drive like this, I'm fine. But if I let go of the wheel, it's just going to do this. It's going to drift this way. It's not going to drive. It's not going to drive straight. And every time that I think of that, I think about alignment, I always think about my life. Because I'm telling you, 
If the Holy Spirit and some brothers and my church aren't holding the wheel of Todd's life with me, I'm going to do this. Right? We all have bents that we go in directions we go if we aren't taking care of that. And man, church discipline, churches, being part of a church is amazing protection for our lives. An absolute blessing. Because I know, I know that my church is going gonna, is gonna to keep me within the bounds of God's love and grace. I know they're going to come after me, not going to let me go. I know they're going to get up in my business. And it's such a blessing to have that. Because I know, I know that if you let me go off on my own, I will drift away from the Lord. You understand the blessing of church discipline, just how beautiful that is for us. It's a protection for our lives. It's restorative. It's meant to restore us. That's the intention of church discipline. It's not meant to punish you. It's, and everything about church discipline is meant to bring us back. It's going after the lost sheep and grabbing the lost sheep off the cliff and bringing them back into the fold. That's the point. And it's beautiful for our lives. And ultimately, God's glory is the issue. Right? It's not us. We're not the center of it. We talked about that last week. We're not the center of God's mercies. God's glory is the center of God's mercies. So what's taking place as I'm being restored back to the body of Christ, as I'm being brought in, then what's, what's, what's taking place is God's glory. God's glory is being preserved, is being, is being magnified by discipline that takes place in the church. And so, brothers, how do we get that? How do we make sure that happens? Listen, if you're not a member of a church, like you haven't gone through membership and said, stood up and take vows or whatever it is in your church you need to do to say, no, I'm not just going to attend. I'm not going to be someone who's, "Ah, I don't know about being a member. No, be a member. Take vows. Secondly, be present. (laughs) Be present. I know, I know that COVID has wiped out all these natural practices we had and rhythms we had in our lives to be present for worship and Sunday school and evening worship if you have it. And I know it's knocked it all out. But it's, it, we got to get back. Everyone's got to get back. We've got to be present. You're going to miss out on this amazing gift of God in church community and discipline and grace if you're not present. If you're not present... You're not present, then, then what's happening? You're developing a private life away from your church family. That's what's happening. Doing church on your own is nowhere in Scripture. <laughs> it's not. Got to get back. Lastly, and finally, do you see God's blessing in all of this? Do you see God's blessing in all this? Notice, notice in verse 18, 19, and 20, Notice again who's speaking. Jesus says in verse 18, truly I say to you, verse 19, again I say to you, verse 20, there I am among you. This is God who is doing this. This is the one, he's the one blessing us. And this discipline that's happening through brothers, it's God doing it. Discipline happening through the church, it's God doing it. This accountability is God's blessing in our lives. There have been three incidences in the last four months of young men that I know 
who have been, um, who've fallen in, in, in pretty serious sin. They've been found out in that. And their lives have been greatly disrupted. And I have thanked the Lord, even, even as they have lost jobs because of it, even as it's, as it's caused uh, um, um, work that needs to be done in their families. And I love these men. I love them. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that God loved them enough to have those things found out in their lives, especially while they're young. There's this great verse in Lamentations chapter 3 where God says, it's better to bear the yoke or it's good to bear the yoke while you are young. And as I look at these guys, I thought to myself, you know what? That's God's blessing in their lives because that same sin and that same issue here in, 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 his, in his mid-20s, mid to late 20s, yeah, that's going to cost him a lot. But if that had been left until he was 50, who knows what it could have cost him. Man, God has been gracious to him. What a blessing. What a blessing to grab a hold of them. Talked about addiction last week in my 12-year struggle with, with a bulimia addiction. And man, when, when, when it all came out and I had to deal with it in my, my late 20s, it felt overwhelming and disastrous. And I look back and I say, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you didn't, that you didn't leave me down that, that path, but instead grabbed a hold of me and, and blew up my life. What a grace it is. What a grace it is when a brother comes to you and says, hey, hey what's going on? What a grace it is when a church loves their members enough that they will not let them continue in sin, but plead with them and say, please, please repent. What a blessing that is. Because in that blessing, what's happening, brothers, God is refusing to let us go. That's what's taking place. God is saying, I will not let you go. That's what I told these men. I said, I know you're struggling. I know you're hurting. I know this is painful. But I want to tell you one truth that's happening right now. God loves you so much, he won't let you go. And he will blow up your life in order to keep you as his son. And I said, one day you'll see the blessing of this. Close with this story. Years ago, I've told this in our new members class for years because it's meant so much to me. Years ago, 30 years ago, there's this young man who was in college. He was an elder's son in our church. And uh, he had professed faith, this son had professed faith when he was uh, in high school. Um, but, but man, at this point in life, he was not living that faith at all. He had become notorious, not just as a drug user and as a womanizer, but as someone who actually um, was, uh, was selling drugs to even kids in our church um, and was, was known widely as someone who, uh, who, um, who had these parties and was inviting even a lot of our kids, an elder son. We went to him, like Matthew 18, and we said, please, brother, repent. He wouldn't meet with us. He wouldn't listen to us. It went all the way until this one evening. It was a Monday night. And the elders 
four elders who were part of commission had asked him to come in. I was there. This guy walks into the uh, session room and he just stares at us. He's probably 21 at this time. I mean, just some of the most cold, uh, hate-filled eyes you've ever seen, just staring at me. I mean, you could feel the hate coming from this, from this young man. He never said a word the whole time. He just sat there at the table. I remember one of our, our elders who had known this young man since he was born, sitting across the table from him, the elders, tears streaming down his face. And he said, please repent. I fear hell for you. I remember thinking in that moment, can he say that? That seems strong. I thought about it a little later. and I'm like, that's exactly what was happening. This elder feared hell for him. Please repent. Tears streaming down this elder's face. This young man just stared back at that elder, the same hatred, said nothing. That was the last and final step. Young man left, commissioned the session, voted to excommunicate him. That just simply meant you became a member by taking vows and professing faith in Christ. You're not living a life that is one of faith in Christ, and you've refused to repent. Therefore, the church, like it says here in Matthew 18, is loosing you is saying, you're not a believer. I thought that would be the end of it. But about three years later, I was then in Greenville, South Carolina. This happened in Augusta, Georgia. I was now in Greenville, South Carolina, youth pastor there. It was a Saturday morning. I was sitting in my office and my phone rang. A lot of miracles in that statement right there, right? Because I'm a youth pastor. What am I doing in my office on a Saturday morning? That's one miracle right? Two, I don't know how my phone rang without the receptionist. I don't know how it got through to me. I really don't. That's odd. I pick up the phone. I said, hello, it's Todd. Voice on the other said, on their end said, yeah, hey, this is, a, this is Chris. It's that young man. He proceeded to tell me, Todd, I don't know if I ever hated anybody more that night than you and those other men. I was so angry. I was so sure that you were the ones who were arrogant and prideful. But I just want you to know, Todd, and I had to get a whole day. I had to find you. I want you to know that that night changed my life. And I couldn't get it out of my head. And it was about a year later gave my life to Christ because I couldn't stop thinking about that moment. I gave my life to Christ, and I just want you to know that I'm walking with him, that I'm serving in a church in Charlotte, and I wanted to thank you. I wanted to thank you for loving me. Brothers, from that point on, <laughs> if I didn't believe in accountability as brothers in Christ and in the church, boy, I believed in it in that moment. So as I stand before you, I'll ask these questions to you one more time. Do you have a brother who will come after you? Are you seeking to live transparently? Do you value the safeguard 
of the church. And do you see God's blessing in all of this? Let's pray. Father, these are my brothers in this room. And we stand before you as, as weak and broken vessels who are, who are prone to sin, prone to wander, as the hymn says. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to continue to work that, that work of self-control, self-accountability in our lives. Heavenly Father, we need, to, we need brothers to walk with us. We need to, to be brothers who walk with each other in mutual accountability. Father, we need to learn to listen and receive rebuke as a blessing. Father, we need to be, we need to be men who are fully involved in our churches, who, who, who long to be with the church family. Lord, we need that. We need to understand the blessings, the grace of your discipline in our lives. So, Father... In our weakness, would you please continue to work that in us? Because we want to be your men. We want to be men after your own heart. And we need help. Father, we pray this all in your son's name. And all God's people said, amen.